Please open your Bibles again. Uh, go to Genesis chapter 2. We're looking at verses 18 down to 25 of chapter 2 uh, this evening. The gift of the bride. The gift of the bride. Uh, I can never honestly describe myself as a lover of jigsaw puzzles. Uh, every 10 years or so, uh, I can get out a jigsaw puzzle and I can enjoy uh, doing the jigsaw puzzle and begin to appreciate a little bit why folk who are into jigsaw puzzles will have the puzzle out you know, for day after day on a table and really get a lot of pride out of that. Uh, but if you are an occasional jigsaw puzzle uh, player as I am, the trouble is that you've got a limited option when uh, you get the notion to do a jigsaw. It's usually something that's been uh, lying in the top of a cupboard, battered through removals and all kinds of things. And you get going and uh, you patiently work through all these great uh, <coughs> stretches of blue sky, which is all the same. <laughs> and eventually the thing is looking good and uh, you're becoming quite proud of it until at the last, because it's an old jigsaw puzzle, you discover, of course, there's a missing piece. And it looks terrible because it's obvious that there's something missing from the jigsaw. Uh, it just looks terrible. In the creation account, there's a missing piece that causes a jar in the story. All the commentators point out uh, how shocking it is that we're told that everything is good. The Lord pronounces it is good. Indeed, it is very good. And then we come to something not good. Not good. And that something which is not good is the fact that Adam is alone. <clears throat> despite the perfection of creation, this is before the fall, despite the abundant provision that God makes for Adam in the garden, you can eat of any tree, uh, takes his fancy apart from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything is wonderful apart from this one thing, aloneness. And the gift of the bride is God's answer to that situation, to this endemic human problem. Now, I want us to see how this works out, first of all, as we look at loneliness itself, and then the purpose and nature of marriage, and then at a, a deeper, higher, more enduring gift uh, than marriage itself, which Genesis 2 and the gift of the bride is pointing us towards, the gift of the Lord Jesus. In June this year, June 2014, the Office for National Statistics uh, declared that Britain is the loneliness capital of Europe. Really sad. Uh, we're less likely uh, in this country to have strong friendships or to know our neighbours than residents anywhere else in the EU. A relatively high proportion of folks in Britain have no one to rely on in a time of crisis. Research at the University of Chicago uh, showed that loneliness is twice as bad for older people's health than obesity 
and almost as great a cause of death as poverty. Now that uh, is shocking, but the, these statistics overlook uh, something which we maybe don't realise as much, and that is the impact of loneliness on younger people. Uh, in 2010, the Mental Health Foundation uh, found loneliness to be a greater concern amongst young people than amongst elderly people. 18 to 34-year-olds in their survey were more likely to feel lonely or to worry about feeling alone and to feel depressed because they were lonely than over 55s. And the researchers were thinking that part of the reason might be the dependence on social media, like, like Facebook, which on the one hand does allow you to meet with more people, so I'm told, uh, but also you, in, you encounter... Uh, people who will project only one side of their social life, a, per a perfect social life. And so uh, people withdraw from making real social contact because they feel they can never match up to the perceived perfections of people uh, projected through social media. God says it is not good for a man to be alone. It's not good for women to be alone. It's not good for children to be alone either. We are created... As social beings, uh, one of the one of the um, the entails of being made in the image of God is that we're made in the image of God, who is not alone. He is God, the Trinity. He is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and has from eternity been in communion, in fellowship, in community as God. He does not exist in isolation. He is God the three in one. And he's made us in his image to need that kind of relationship with other people. One of the, one of the lessons that I've, I've had over the years from going out into the, the Karen Hill tribe people from Burma, who are in the, now many of them in refugee camps in Thailand, one of the things I've learned from them is the healing power of Christian community. That there is a wonderful therapeutic uh, benefit from being together. And that it's actually a healing thing to be placed into a, a, a living church. For example, uh, when children uh, from Burma have experienced all kinds of traumas. And we're talking about real trauma. We're talking about children who saw their parents shot in front of them. Uh, who've had to walk for weeks through jungles and who eventually ended up in refugee camps. The response is not to give them counselling. The response is Christian community. The response is to place them into Sunday school and church to make sure that they don't isolate themselves from others. And over time, the Spirit of God brings healing through the love of God's people. The particular response that we have here from God to human loneliness is the gift of marriage. Now, we need to say right at the beginning that uh, this is not the answer to all of our longings for intimacy, as we're going to see later on. Uh, it would be quite wrong to say to everyone who knows the reality of loneliness uh, to get a wife or to get a husband. I, I heard of a preacher in 
in a large congregation, talking of very large congregation, uh, who, looking around, especially the young men in the congregation who were so absorbed in their careers that they had no inclination to think about marriage, and he took upon himself uh, to try and give a little gentle nudge and would say to, for example, the, the young bachelor pursuing a law career, what rhymes with life? To which the unknowing uh, look was, I don't know. <laughs> Wife, get one. <laughs> and that he saw as his calling to nudge people to uh, the solution to their problem. That would not have been the solution for the Apostle Paul, who was clearly called uh, to see his vocation in singleness to serve the Lord and to said to others who were in his situation that uh, it was a calling because it freed them up to serve the Lord. But nevertheless, uh, simply because marriage isn't a calling for everyone and because it is an institution which has had many knocks as well in our day, uh, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't celebrate it as God's unique gift uh, to humanity. And we're meant to do that as we come uh, to see the very real compassion that God has on his first human creation, Adam, in giving the gift of the bride. Marriage, as we see it in Genesis 2, has two uh, main functions. God put this first couple together that they might know, first of all, companionship, and secondly, partnership. Companionship and partnership. Marriage is first and foremost about companionship. This gift, the gift of the bride, is God's answer to Adam's aloneness. Now, that's why we have this strange interlude uh, in verses 19 and 20. Uh, God announces in verse 19 that uh, sorry in verse 18 that he's going to make a helper suitable for Adam and we'd expect that we go straight to the formation of Eve but instead of that we have this uh, animal procession the animals are brought uh, before Adam that he might name them and we wonder what's going on here why do we have this uh, strange interlude now, this isn't simply an act of categorizing and labeling. It is more than that. Uh, it's, it's also indicating that Adam has a, a, a lordship over the animal kingdom. To name something uh, in the ancient world is to indicate that you have the rule over it. You have primacy over that. So, for example, uh, if you were a conquering nation, it was you who named the battle site. And if you made captives of a people, then often you would give them names, as happened, for example, to Daniel and his four friends in Babylon. The, the naming, if you are the one who names, you're indicating that your priority over them. Adam is stating his rule over the animal kingdom. But it's more than that. Adam, God is allowing Adam to feel his loneliness. He's to feel his loneliness. He is going to be made to appreciate this gift. It will not be given to him 
before he's ready to receive it. And so as Adam goes from Ardvark to Zebra, through this long, long list of animals, and sees that they all have their own mate, but he hasn't anything amongst them remotely uh, suited to him, he is allowed to feel his lack, to feel his need of what God is about to give to him. And so God will give his great gift to an Adam who's prepared to appreciate it rather than squander it. Now, of course, that's one of the reasons why cohabiting before marriage is wrong at so many different levels, isn't it? People that cohabit before they are lawfully wed before the sight of God are really not in a position to appreciate the gift of marriage when they do come to be married. And so it's little wonder that couples who cohabit are actually more likely to divorce than those who've kept themselves apart and who who may enter marriage with more naivety and less street wisdom, but with more appreciation for the gift that God is bestowing on them. The word uh, companion itself comes from from Latin, uh, to share bread with someone. You're sharing, uh, you have a sharing with one another. You're sharing your life with someone. Uh, Most importantly, you're sharing your thoughts with someone. And so communication uh, is so important uh, in this idea of companionship, which is the foundation of marriage. And of course, when, when that falters, when it breaks down, then something is very much amiss. Some time back I was speaking to uh, a father who was sharing his heartbreak that his, his, uh, his daughter's wedding, his daughter's marriage uh, was on the rocks after a very short time after the wedding. And yet bizarrely that the couple were still doing some of the things that uh, a husband and wife will do, although they were living separately. Uh, they would occasionally meet up for breakfast and they would go out to the cinema and so on. And he said, really, uh, with, with a, a great deal of sadness, on one occasion when they'd been out to the cinema, he got in touch with the father-in-law the following day, asking what was wrong with her. He didn't seem, she didn't seem to be herself. And the, the great sadness was that this was, this was so uh, indicative of the, the real problem. There was no communication. There was uh, a sitting beside each other. There was a sharing of the same space. But there was no sharing of the self. When there's no communication, there's something deeply pathological happening in a marriage. Marriage, as God has given it, is for companionship. It's also given for partnership. God is uh, giving Adam a partner to fulfill his purposes in ruling the earth for God. You remember that the, the creation, we call them the creation ordinances, the commands that God uh, gives at the outset of life on earth, uh, the creation of work. One of them was to, to fill the earth and to subdue it. Well, clearly Adam can't fill the earth on his own. He needs a partner uh, to do that, to, to raise up uh, generations who will go out 
and who will fill the earth and who will subdue it, uh, who will bring it under the reign of God, who will bring God's rule over the whole of the world that God has created. Friends, that's the ideal for every, every Christian marriage, that together there, there is a partnership formed between a Christian man and a Christian woman, and together they are to extend the rule of God over his world. That, that involves bringing up uh, children to know the Lord, that there might be generations which will follow us. Uh, it also indicates that together we are more effective than we would be apart. I knew uh, a chap once who shared that when he and his wife were married, they had on the, their wedding rings uh, inscribed the words of Psalm 34, uh, verse uh, 32, extol Three, extol the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. It's a lovely intent with which to go into a marriage, is it not? That together we will extol the Lord. We've come into a partnership uh, to glorify the Lord, to extend his rule in his world. Now, we inevitably come at this point to the bit where modern ideas of how the sexes relate <coughs> come into collision with what the Bible teaches. It's almost a, an orthodoxy today to say that women and men are absolutely equal and therefore interchangeable in their roles. Okay, it's it's almost it's almost accepted as a given. If you if you quibble with this, uh, you can be very unpopular. So there are virtually no activities which are thought to be peculiarly the domain of men, or conversely of women. So equality and interchangeability are said to go together, but. The Bible teaches that equality goes hand in hand with complementarity. That we are not interchangeable, but we are complementary as sexes. So, on the one hand, the sexes are equal in their status before God. And that's, that has to be our starting point. That's a fundamental truth. We are made man and woman in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. So our essential worth before God is equal. The word will speak of uh, the, the man and the woman uh, being one flesh. Peter, uh, in his epistle, speaks of husband and wives as heirs together of God's promises. Uh, women serve notably in Israel and the church, but in the ordering of the family and of the church, God has ordained that leadership or headship be given 
to the husband. And because the church is ordered in parallel to the family, in the family of the church, uh, leadership roles are given to men. And that role as leader in family and in church is based upon the order of creation. Uh, So when you find Paul uh, speaking of ordering in the family in the church, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 13, Paul is picking up on this creation order. It's an elemental uh, ordering. I do not permit, he says, a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. The reason? For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. Creation mandates, creation orders. Uh, The reason these early chapters of the Bible are so important is that they are unveiling for us principles which are are foundational, which don't change with the move from Israel to the church, which aren't conditioned by the fact that they came after the fall. They are basic, fundamental, foundational uh, commands from God. So the roles of husband and wife in the home or elder and member in the church are complementary. One does one thing, Uh, to complement the other. And if the woman does indeed yield the lead to a husband in the home, as she should, and if she gives men the role of of teaching and ruling elder in the church, she is not, in doing that, yielding anything in regard to her essential equality before God. It's interesting that the word helper that's used, when God gives Adam a helper suited to her, uh, the word uh, helper signifies a lack in the man. And the woman is there to make up that lack in the man. Going back to the jigsaw uh, illustration again, that there are gaps in the jigsaw piece which the projections in another piece complement. The word helper is used of God in 16 out of the 19 times it appears in the Old Testament. So the word helper is signifying the the woman's essential contribution. It's not signifying an inadequacy in the woman. And the word suitable in Hebrew means equal and adequate. So men and women differ in their sexuality and they differ in their role in the home and in the church but they are equal as bearers of the image of God and in their standing before God. So that's the purpose of of marriage. The purpose of marriage is companionship and partnership. And we see in in the partnering, we see a complementarity, not a a bland equality which uh, erases all differences, and assumes interchangeability, but roles that complement the other in the family and in the church. The nature of marriage. God takes a man, puts him into a deep sleep. He's knocked out. He's anaesthetized. He will have no part, uh, no input, no advice to give in the 
helper that God will give him. This is God's design. It will be God's gift. And under this divine anesthetic, God takes from Adam a rib. And this is a beautiful image uh, because it indicates the intimacy and the harmony that should undergird a marriage relationship. I'm sure uh, many of us have heard the, the way that Matthew Henry, the, the Puritan commentator, uh, spoke of, of this act by God and how it relates to the, the tenderness that there should be between the man and the woman. This is how he put it. Uh, the woman is not made out of his head to rule over him, Adam, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. Beautiful way of expounding that act of God. And then God brings Eve to Adam. Think of it in terms of, of the, the wedding ceremony. God is acting here like the father, isn't he? He's coming with the girl to present the bride to the groom. And this first marriage is taking place in the presence of God in what we saw last time is uh, essentially a garden temple an enclosed area that's functioning as the temple would function later. And with all of this <clears throat> background, uh, we have something of the holiness, something of the sacredness of marriage as an institution communicated to us. And then we hear of the joy that marriage brings. First, a literal translation of the Hebrew, for the first word that Adam says, would be something like, Yahoo. <laughs> It wouldn't, but it's literally a, a, an exclamation of joy. In fact, when, when Adam goes on to speak these first words that we have recorded, it's a, it's a song, really. It's got all of the elements of Hebrew poetry. There is parallelism, uh, there is wordplay and assonance. Uh, he basically bursts into song at the sight of Eve. Here at last is someone that suits me. She's of my kind. I can relate to her. She will make up in me the lack, the deficiency. She banishes loneliness. She completes the man. She forms a new partnership. Marriage is a wonderful blessing. And it brought to the first couple this spontaneous outburst of joy. And then Moses reflects on the significance of the first marriage. And we see it here quite clearly uh, given to us as, the, as the, the template, the archetype of all subsequent marriages. And because the husband and wife are one flesh, this bond has priority over the parent-child bond. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. So the 
husband leaves his father and mother. There's a, there's a, a separating of the ways. Despite the, the fifth commandment, despite our ongoing uh, obligation to honour our father and mother, we need to leave home because this new bond takes priority over the bond between parent and child. It has to do. And it's significant also that when children, if, if indeed children are given to a marriage then that remains the case. And the primary bond is between the husband and the wife, not between the husband, not, not between the father or the mother and the child. The best way for someone to be a good father to his son or daughter is to be a good husband to his wife. The best way to be a good mother to a child is to be a good wife to your husband. That is the way that God has ordered things. And when we don't obey the maker's instructions, then things go wrong. There are so many other implications also. We don't have time to go into them all. Clearly, marriage is between one man and one woman. Monogamous. It's not polygamous. Uh, there, were, there was polygamy uh, after sin came into the world, but this is God's ordering of things right at the beginning. Homosexual marriage is such a travesty when we see what God has ordained here. It's a denial of reality. And of course, one flesh, it is designed for life. Now, we come to this wonderful gift which we are rightly to to celebrate and to give thanks to God for. But we come to this in the reality of our broken world and the reality of the fact, actually, that uh, in a gathering like this, for whatever reasons, it's a minority of us who are actually married. Some of us know that the deep pain of, of, of a broken marriage and we live as single people. Uh, some of us have been bereaved and we find ourselves again single. Or we're young people and we're not married yet. And maybe that it is not God's plan for us to be. Uh, and then you move further out. And in the, the wider church, uh, there are some who struggle with uh, same-sex attraction. And if they're seeking to honour God, then they are committed to a life of celibacy and singleness. And to be honest, for, for many people, uh, sermons like this about marriage can be quite painful and only seem to increase that sense of longing for an intimacy that is denied to us. So what has the Bible got to say into that situation? Well, always when we're, when we're reading in any part of the, the Old Testament, the storyline is always propelling us on to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as son of God, Jesus eternally lived in communion. A communion of intimacy with the Father and the Spirit. And yet, for our sakes, he entered a broken world. And he knew loneliness. That he might heal our loneliness. We were thinking that this morning, when we are thinking of 
the home of, of Mary and Martha, and how that was such a boon to the Lord Jesus, that Jesus was, was denied, if you, of, he voluntarily gave up the, the blessedness of, of a home, of a domestic place, a haven. But Jesus also lived amongst us in his humanity as a single man. He didn't know uh, the human intimacy of marriage. He lived sinlessly as a single man. And the Lord says, a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Like Jesus. And this is our calling, to be uh, like the one who made himself vulnerable as a single man, and yet gave himself to people. He loved fervently Peter and James and John. And he's the one to follow. And he loved Mary and Martha with a pure heart. He's the one to follow. He had deep friendships with single people and married people and young people and old people. And so the Lord becomes our, our model and our inspiration when we find that, that human, uh, the, the institution of, of, of marriage is not uh, ours. And throughout his life, the Lord Jesus is sustained by the communion, the, the fellowship that he has with his Father. And he knows the joy that the Holy Spirit gives to him in this union with his father, we, we were looking at one of the verses in chapter 10, uh, not so long ago. At that time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He knew joy in his father. He knew the affirmation of the father. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus has brought to all of us, whether we're single or married, that deep, sustaining intimacy with God that sustained him. And he brought that to us. He brought that closeness, that new, intimate relationship with God through his death and resurrection. There's a a lovely parallel in some ways uh, between the fact that before Adam could have a bride. Before there could be a bride and a groom, there had to be a putting to sleep. Adam is put to sleep and rises again to greet his bride. And Jesus goes to death on the cross. He's put to sleep. He's put to death for our sakes that he might win for himself a bride only through going under the water of death for us, does he obtain, does he win for himself a bride? And he overcomes the thing that keeps us from intimacy with God, our sin, the thing that estranges us from God because it's rebellion, because it's idolatry. He's slain for all of that, that he might become for us the great lover of our soul. And that's a great difference that becoming a Christian makes, doesn't it? That we, we find in Jesus our all in all. Uh, he is beautiful to us. He is the fairest of 10,000 to our souls. 
And it's for a good reason that for centuries, preachers have gone to the Song of Solomon and have seen there in that love poem, and that is what it is, it's a love poem, it's speaking of human love, but they've seen in that deeper echoes of the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for the church and for the individual Christian. Brought me up to his banqueting table, his banner over me is love. And we have this wonderful model that Paul gives to us in Ephesians. Uh, and it's the comparison between the love of Jesus for his church and the love that a, a Christian husband has to have for his wife. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And that love, which is a model uh, for the, the believer and for the church, is also something that we experience in a saving relationship with Jesus. He loved us. He wooed us to himself. He is perfecting us. He's washing us clean from sin. He perseveres with us. One day he will perfect us. And so for all of God's people, whether we are married or not, the answer to human loneliness is ultimately the Lord Jesus himself, who went out into the, the darkness of utter forsakenness to bring us into the light and warmth of the most amazing intimacy. And so the antidote to minimized human love is to max out on the love of Jesus, to know him as the fairer than 10,000. To know that if we have him, then no matter what our circumstances are, no matter that we have daily to contend with the reality of our own brokenness, we have in Jesus all that we could desire. One day there will be no marriages apart from the great marriage between Jesus and his people. And until that day, he sustains us all with his love. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take these, these words, this expounding of your love to us, and apply them to our hearts, Lord, in ways that no one but you would understand. And grant us, Lord, to know whatever our situation is, however trying it is to us, no matter how long we've struggled to make sense of where we're at, help us, Lord, to know that you love us with a love no human could ever bestow upon us, a love that is solid and enduring, and so deeply satisfying. So come and bless us, Lord. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.